0: Well, my name is Jeremy Congdon, and I am the new youth minister here, and I am just super grateful, not only here uh, to just be here in this place, but to have an opportunity to get up here and do this. Um, this is my first time preaching on staff, but it is not my first time preaching on this stage. Uh, about 14 years ago, when I was a senior in high school, 2008 it would have been, I um, I had won this goofy little preaching contest here in the state and I, uh, my, my family and I were attending here and I got invited to preach up here. And so um, I, I can't say that it's familiar just yet, um, but hopefully over the years it will be. Um, but I, again, I'm just grateful uh, to be back here and to get to do this with you guys um, here this morning. So July 1st, 1898, Cuba, Spanish-American War. At the bottom of San Juan Hill, Colonel Teddy Roosevelt was preparing to lead the charge against 750 Spanish soldiers who had been ordered to hold the heights of the hill. Now, just weeks before, Teddy Roosevelt had resigned his civilian commission as assistant secretary of the Navy to join the cavalry. He said, someday I want to be able to tell my kids why I did join the war and not why I didn't. And so, on that July morning... Teddy Roosevelt strapped on his boots, and he led the Rough Riders regiment up that hill under withering Spanish gunfire and on to victory. And for his courage, eventually he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, fast forward to June 6th, 1944, World War II, Normandy, France. In the troop transport ships just offshore sat Brigadier General Teddy Roosevelt Jr. President Roosevelt had four boys, and he poured himself into these boys. He taught them how to hunt, he taught them how to shoot a gun, how to ride a horse. He instilled in them patriotism and a, and a sense of duty and leadership. And that's why Brigadier General Teddy Roosevelt Jr. insisted on leading the D Day invasion. Um, at first, his request was denied. They said, no, you're 57 years old, okay? And no other general is going in the first wave of troops. Plus, it would be really bad PR if a Roosevelt died on the first day. That wouldn't be good. Uh, but he insisted. He said that my, if I go, my men will be steady because they'll know that I am I'm there with them. And so finally, after his third request, they agreed. And on that June morning, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. strapped on his boots And he led his troops up the beach into withering German gunfire and on to victory. And because of his courage, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, just like his dad. Everyone is leaving behind a legacy. If you're a parent this morning, you are leaving footprints for your children to follow you are leaving a pair of shoes for your children to fill. And even if you aren't a parent today, maybe you're an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent-like figure, maybe you're just somebody who has influence over other people, somebody who's younger than you. Whoever you are, you're leaving a legacy for those around you. This message is for everyone because everyone is leaving behind a legacy. Now, I'm a parent And uh, I'm also a youth minister. And so I think about things like this uh, quite often. And I'd love to be able to stand up here and tell you with confidence uh, that I'm going to leave this perfect legacy for my kids or my students. Uh, But you and I both know that that's not going to happen, right? Um, I pulled these shoes out of my garage, actually. Uh, They're dirty. If If you can't tell, they're dirty. They got some holes in them. They're pretty tore up, falling apart a little bit. And I know that because of my humanness, because of my sin, the legacy that I'm going to leave behind is going to be a little scuffed up. You know why that scares me? It's because I know that my influence is multi-generational. The way that I raise my kids is not only going to affect them, it's going to affect the way my grandkids are raised, and their children after them, and their children after them. Uh, One of the scariest verses, I think, in the whole Bible is Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5, verses 9 and 10. um, God is, is giving the Ten Commandments, and he's talking about idolatry, and this is what he says. He says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But, he says, I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. In other words, God's saying that my decisions, as a parent or even as a youth minister, have generational consequences. It'd be bad enough if my mess just stopped with me, right? But it doesn't. The sad fact is, my mess gets passed on from generation to generation, and we see this in the families in the Bible, too. Abraham was a liar. He lied to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife. And then his son after him, Isaac, was a liar. He lied about the same things to the same king. He said that his wife, Rebekah, was actually his sister. And then Isaac's son followed in his sandals... And was a liar as well. You guys remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Isaac's sons were twins, right? Brothers who could not be any more different from each other. You have Esau over here, and Esau was a man's man, okay? He was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter, right? He wore camo. He's a real hairy guy, uh, he probably had a, a skull ring in his back pocket. You know what I'm talking about? He's the kind of guy who, uh, who cleans his ears out with his truck key. You know that type? His name, Esau, means red. So he was the original redneck. You can think of it like that. I like to picture Esau like this. He's Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> That's who he is. And he honestly, he would have been the more likable of the two brothers. But he was also Isaac's favorite son. Over here you have Jacob. Esau's twin brother. Now, Jacob was not a man's man. Jacob was a con man. Jacob was this slick riverboat gambler type. He's the kind of guy who wears a suit, little dash of cologne, real ladies' man, smooth operator, as they say. He had smooth arms, smooth hands, smooth lines. Have you ever seen the, uh, the Ocean movies? Ocean's 11, 12, 13. Jacob is Danny Ocean, okay? Jacob's George Clooney. That's who he is, all right? He's this charmer. He's a fast talker that could pull a fast one on you. And that's exactly what Jacob does to his father, Isaac. Esau was the older brother, and he was supposed to get his father's blessing to make him the leader of the family. But Jacob, the con man, wanted his father's blessing for himself. And so he concocts this plan, and he sends it into motion. And one day, while his brother is out on the hunt, Jacob kills a goat, and he makes some stew and he takes the goat hair, and he puts it on his arms, and uh, he goes into Esau's closet, and he takes out one of Esau's coats. Uh, Esau was an outdoorsman. He probably smelled like campfire a lot of the time, right? And so he puts on Esau's coat, and he goes into his father's tent, and uh, he has this bowl of stew. And his father, Isaac, is old, probably doesn't see very well at this point, but he knows that somebody's opened the flap of his tent. Who's there? Uh, Dad, it's me. <clears throat> Dad it's, uh, it's me, Esau. I've come back from the hunt and. Uh, I brought you some stew, and I'm here for my blessing. Is that really you, Esau? You sounded like Jacob there for a second. Why don't you come over here. Let me feel your arms. Yeah, they're hairy. Why don't you bend down here. Let me, let me smell you. Yep, campfire. Okay, well, kneel down, and, and I'll give you your blessing. And just like that, Jacob steals the blessing. He deceives his dad, and he lies using a goat and a coat. Now, fast forward several years, and Jacob is now a father. He's got two wives. He's got 12 sons. And just like Isaac, his dad, he plays favorites. Of all his 12 boys, Joseph was his favorite. He gives Joseph the coat of many colors. You remember that story? And uh, all of Joseph's brothers hated him because he was the favorite. And one day, the brothers were out in the field watching over their flocks. And Joseph, of course, didn't have to go out and work. He got to stay back in the tent. But Jacob says to Joseph, hey, I want you to go out and check on your brothers. Make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so Joseph puts on his coat of many colors, and he begins to walk out. And the brothers see him from far off, and they, they hate him, right? Right. And there's bitterness there. And so they decide, we're going to attack him and we're going to kill him. And so they grab him. They tear his clothes. They beat him up. They tie his hands up. But they decide not to kill him. Instead, they see a caravan passing by on their way to Egypt. And so they sell him to the caravan for 20 pieces of silver. They got rid of their hated brother. That was the goal. But now they have to figure out what they're going to tell their father, Jacob. And so they do a pretty good Danny Ocean impression. And they concoct a scheme, and they begin to execute this plan, and they take a goat, and they kill it. And they take Joseph's coat, and they rip it up. And they put the goat's blood on the coat, and they go to their father, and they say, look, we found Joseph's coat. It was, it was in this field. It was covered in blood. And we think, we think maybe an animal got him. And Jacob is just heartbroken. He's devastated. But what he doesn't realize is that he was deceived by his own sons. They lied to him using a goat. And a coat. God says, I will lay the sins of the parents upon their children, even to the third and fourth generations. You have Abraham, who was a liar, Isaac was a liar, Jacob was a liar, and his sons were liars. Everyone here is leaving a legacy. The question is what's yours? In 1900, uh, there was a book that was published by a guy named A.E. Winship, um, and it was entitled Jukes Edwards, A Study in Education and Heredity. Sounds like a fun read, right? Um, But it was a sociological study of these two fathers, these two families, and their lineage. And so the first father uh, was a man named Jonathan Edwards. That name might sound familiar to you. He was a, a Puritan preacher in the 1700s. He also was uh, eventually became the uh, president of Princeton University, and he was a good, godly man. He was married to his wife, Sarah, and he was faithful to her. They had 11 children together, and he poured into his kids, and uh, they loved God, and he poured into them a love of learning, and of work ethic, and of responsibility to their community, and 150 years after Jonathan Edwards' death, this book um, is published, and it traces his 1,400 descendants in those 150 years. This is what they found among his descendants. They were, there were 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, 100 plus university professors, 62 doctors, 100 clergymen, missionaries, seminary professors, 60 published authors, 75 army or navy officers, 80 who were elected To public office three mayors of major cities three state governors several members of congress three senators one vice president of the u.s and one first lady of the u.s that's a pretty amazing legacy for jonathan edwards but the other lineage the second father in the book is a man named max jukes that's not his real name and that's not a real picture of him but He is a real guy who actually lived in the 1700s around the same time as Jonathan Edwards. And here's the deal, he was a decent man. Um, Some considered him to be fairly jolly, as they say, but um, he struggled with alcoholism and he had a pretty vulgar mouth and he didn't have any time for work or education and he certainly didn't have any use for God. He had several children himself, a few of whom were illegitimate. He was not faithful to his wife. And in the 150 years since Max Jukes' death, the same book traces his 1,200 descendants, and this is what they found. 310 were professional paupers or beggars. 60 became thieves. 130 did time in prison. 128 prostitutes. 7 murderers. Over 400 who wrecked their health and alcoholism. 67 had syphilis. 300 died very early on in life. They were vagrants, they avoided hard work, and they found only 20 in the entire family tree that had actually learned a trade, and 10 of those learned it in a state prison. And in the 150 years since Max Jukes' death, this book estimated that at this point, his descendants had cost the state of New York $1.25 million. Hear me out. Your influence... multi-generational you are not just passing on your dna you are passing on habits and beliefs and attitudes and values you're passing on communication patterns and relational patterns and conflict resolution patterns and emotional defense mechanisms and a thousand other little quirks and little influencers that will cling the branches of your family tree for decades, maybe even centuries. Whether you realize it or not, right now, for good or for bad, you are literally shaping the lives of hundreds of people who will follow you. Now, <clears throat> can you understand why Satan targets anyone and everyone who has the influence over young people, especially parents? I mean, you are, you are manning the front lines in a generational war on evil. And Satan is not an idiot, okay? He understands this. He understands this principle, and he knows that if he can just undermine you, if he can take you out, if he can distract you from your mission as a parent or a grandparent or a big brother or sister or a youth leader, if he can just dilute your character a little bit here and a little bit there, then he will have his foot in your family door for generations to come everyone is leaving a legacy the question is what's yours can i tell you what god wants your legacy to be he tells us he's not shy about it in fact jesus says that this is the greatest scripture in the entire old testament if you didn't know that that's pretty wild deuteronomy 6 you might be familiar with this verses 4 through 9 so what it says listen O israel the lord is our god the lord alone And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands. Wear them on your foreheads if you have to. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Did you know that for centuries now, every faithful Jew, every morning, gets up and recites that text? That's their morning prayer. And every faithful Jew, every morning for hundreds of years, has been reminded of what God wants for his people. It's these two things, love him with all your heart and teach your kids to do the same. See God has this global redemptive strategy, okay? He has a plan and it begins in the home. God's plan to save the world starts in your living room. You think our nation is a mess? It's not because of government failure, it's because of the family failure. So goes the family, so goes the nation, so goes the world. God tells us, essentially here, and Jesus tells us, like, hey, if you don't hear anything else out of all this, this is what we want you to know. Love me and teach your children to love me. That's what's most important. Now, if I could say this morning, if you don't hear anything else, (laughs) like, this is my bottom line, as we say in student ministry, right? Like, this is the one thing I want you to get from this message today. It's this, your greatest legacy is a godly legacy. That's your greatest legacy. That's what God wants you to shoot for. When it comes to your influence in this lifetime, again, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a coach, or maybe you're a teenager who has younger people looking up to you, aim for godliness. Aim for godliness. Now, I've been been doing youth ministry for 12 years now, just just over 12 years. And so um, I've heard parents say multiple times that, man, I just want my kid to be happy, I want my kid to be successful. I want my kid to to just be a good person and to be nice to people, and those things are great. I would never stand here and tell you not to shoot for those things. Those things are obviously really good, but it's not enough, okay? It's not enough. You need to set the bar higher. Set the bar higher for yourselves. Set the bar higher for your kids. Raise kids who love God with all their hearts. Here's the deal. It's not going to happen on accident, okay? Okay? It doesn't just happen by chance. You have 936 weeks. 936 weeks from the time they are born until they turn 18. That's 6,570 days. 936 weeks. And you might be familiar with that. If you're a a parent who takes your kid to children's ministry, you might walk down this hallway and see the different things that they have in the hall, the little cases with the balls in them. And it shows, it sort of counts down the phases of your kid's life and, and shows you about how much time you have for each one. It's depressing, okay, as you walk through there, if I can be honest. But it's there. You have 936 weeks. That's the time that you are given to pour into your kids, to teach them to love God, to show them what it looks like to love God. 936 weeks, 6,570 days until they go off and they try to fend for themselves in adulthood. Legacy, or leaving a, a godly legacy, it's not going to happen by accident. So we need to use those days wisely. Now, can I give you some practical tips real quick? Like, like, why should you care? Why does this matter? We, we say that in student ministry all the time. I get to this point and I go, so now, why should you care about this? Like, what are are you supposed to do with this? This is your why should you care, okay? Here's the thing. I got three things for you. The first thing is this. You need to give your kids a godly environment. That's the first practical tip. Give your kids a godly environment. This is the, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that portion of of Deuteronomy 6. Uh, There's the story of a Kansas farm family. And they had five boys. And all five of the boys went into the Navy. And the parents were just like what, like, what in the world? What did we do? Why? Well, it's kind of wild that, that all five of our boys wanted to go into the Navy. And what they figured out was that in their boys' room that they, uh, that they all shared growing up, there was a painting of a ship out on the ocean. And what they figured is that these boys spent their whole lives staring at that in their room. And it instilled within them this desire to be out on the water. Give your kids a godly environment because they're paying attention. Put scripture in your homes on your walls, in your living room, their bedrooms. Saturate what they see and feel and experience with, with godly images. Now I'm not saying that absolutely everything has to have scripture on it. If they want a Steph Curry poster or whatever in the room, that's fine too. But 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 create a godly environment. And not just a physical space, but but a, a spiritual environment in your home and in your families that's focused on Jesus. And again, it's not just families, it's it's if you are somebody who just has influence over young people, maybe you're a coach or a teacher what are they experiencing when they're around you? When they're around you, what are you pointing them towards? Create a godly environment. The second thing is this, give your kids a godly education. This is that repeat them again and again to your children part of that verse we read. Give them a godly education. Now, this, this doesn't just mean bring them to church, okay? Church is great, but it's not enough, okay? In fact, uh, one of my pet peeves has been, over the years, parents who are like, wow. Well, you know, for my teenager, I just want them to make the choice themselves. I don't want to force them to go to church. And I'm like, what? Why? You force them to brush their teeth. You force them to do homework, right? And you know what's more important than than good teeth and good grades? Their souls. Make them go to church. They might hate you for it, and that's fine, but at least they're in church, right? At least they're in church. Your kids see over 4,000 ads every day, and some a lot more than, I mean, we see 4,000 ads. Some a lot more than that. If you have a phone and you're, you're on your phone quite a bit, you can see up to 10,000 different ads every single day. I'm telling you, one 45 minute Sunday school lesson a week isn't going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. It starts in the home. Teach them again and again. Repeat these lessons again and again. Make sure your kids are in the Word. Pay them. Yes, I said pay them pay them to memorize scripture, pay them to read their Bibles, pay them to read Christian books that you help pick out or, or we can help pick out. You can come talk to one of our staff members. We'd be happy to do that, but pay them. I promise you it'll be worth, worth it. Uh, one of my professors in college, I love that he did this with his family. Um, We were over there one night for for something, a group of students, and it was bedtime, and he brought his kids out, and they gathered together as a family, and one, they all prayed for each other by name, which I thought was really cool, but then also they brought this globe out, and uh, each one of them picked a different country every night to pray for. Even the kids, the little ones, would pick a country to pray for, and they would pray that God would be made known in that country, and that missionaries would go to that country, and that the gospel would be spread in that country, and I just thought that was awesome. Give your kids godly education. Repeat these messages that God has given us again and again to your children. The third one, I think, is even more important. I think this is the most important point, And this is give your kids a godly example. Commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands. God said that. It's not enough to talk about it. We have to live it out ourselves. Albert Schweitzer, he was a theologian, he said... Example is not the best way of teaching. It's the only way of teaching. (laughs) I always thought that was really good. Um, I'm super grateful for my parents. They're here this morning. I won't make you stand up. Um, I'm super grateful for them, and I'm super grateful for the examples that they gave me growing up. Were they perfect? No, of course not. But there are these images, these, these godly examples that they gave uh, when I was growing up, they're just seared into my memory. Uh, I was born in Chickasha, down south, and we lived there for about 10 years. And I remember my dad uh, being a deacon at Parkview Christian Church. And him, I vividly remember sitting in these pews and watching my dad get up there and do the communion meditation or the, uh, the offering meditation. I remember him leading worship a couple times, which, is, which was awesome. Um, we moved to Hennessy when I was in fourth grade, and I remember my dad doing some lay preaching which is uh, he went to these small churches in the area that needed a preacher on a Sunday, and he would go and preach at that church. And he's got some funny stories about those little churches and things that he experienced there. Um, But just the faithfulness to serve in that way is something that as a kid was huge for me. I remember walking past my parents' bedroom at night for bedtime and seeing my mom. This image is just seared in my head. Seeing my mom sitting on the edge of her bed with the lamp on, her Bible open, and she's reading and i know she was praying for me and my siblings every single night i'll never forget that uh my brother was a huge example for me growing up uh, big reason why i'm in ministry today for sure countless times i remember him saying jeremy i think you'd make a good youth minister you should consider going into ministry and uh hey look how that turned out here we are <laughs> it's kind of cool but uh, he was a minister at a church in tulsa for a long time and i got to spend time with him there in the summers and going to camp and I got to intern at uh at that church with him one summer and even though he made me dress up in this ridiculous chicken costume um for (laughs) for uh this event that we did in the 115 degree Oklahoma summer heat um even though he made me do that I still remember I I just I learned so much from him I learned so much about how to serve people and how to be a pastor and to do so with humility (laughs) um in fact, I'm, I remember my brother had these little signs in his office that said, Be a pastor first. And, uh, I mean, that had an impact on me because in my office I have those same little signs. Uh, my sister was like a second mom. It's kind of a joke in my family. She, she was the second mom to me, and both my parents worked, and so she would pick me up from school, and we spent a lot of time together. A good chunk of my childhood was us. And um, one of the things I remember vividly about her is just her involvement and her dedication to the youth ministry of our church. It was like her second home. It was her second family. And she still tells stories of going to camp and going to CIY with her friends and, and still being connected to the friends that she had when she was in middle school and high school that were a part of the youth group. And I remember that group of students coming over to our house, and I was just little because my siblings were a lot older than me. I remember that group coming to our house all the time, and it was just so cool and so influential for me as the younger brother to get to experience that. And honestly, I imagine that's why I have such a passion for youth ministry today. It's because it was modeled for me growing up. And again, it's not just family. Um, Tom Streck was this youth leader of mine growing up when I was in Hennessy, and uh, he actually came into the church just a couple weeks ago, and um, I hadn't seen him in probably over 10 years, but he came and visited me, and, and we got to sit in my office back here, and I got to tell him what a great example he was for me in middle school. And, uh, I mean, he, he ran a farm. He had a full-time job. He had a family to take care of, and he was there every single Wednesday night for youth group. Every single week he was there. God, God bless him. He led this group of rowdy middle school boys. We were nuts, but he was dedicated. He was there every single week, and I knew he loved us. I'll never forget just the images of him pulling us to the side and and asking us to recite our memory verses and things like that for the week. Here's the thing. I hardly remember anything any of those people said. Sorry, Mom. But I remember what they did. Your kids are watching. And someday they're not going to follow your advice They're going to follow your example. Now, I need to throw a caveat in here. Okay, and I think this is important. You're not perfect. Okay, you're not perfect. None of us are. We're not going to do this perfectly, right? Like, we're going to leave this world with a scuffed up legacy. It's just part of it. We're sinners. That's just how it goes. We can't do this perfectly. But hear me out. Even if you did do this perfectly, even though, even if some, some way, somehow you were able to figure it out and do all of this perfectly, your child or the person that you are mentoring, the person that you are leading is still going to make dumb choices, okay? They're going to mess up and they might even walk away from the faith at some point. Those are the choices that they make, okay? And it has little or nothing to do with you. I don't want anyone to hear me this morning and think, well, you know, my kids aren't following the Lord. And so that must mean that I failed as a parent. That must mean that I failed as a mentor. I did something wrong. No, no. If you follow the Lord, if you are faithful to him and you do your best to show them what that looks like, then ultimately the outcome is in God's hands. There's not much you can do about it. As a youth minister, I've spent hours upon hours with students that I then have to watch as they graduate high school and some of them go off and they turn their back on God or they turn their back on the church. And it hurts. It hurts. And it's really, really hard for me to not take it personally and feel like that I failed them. But if I'm faithful and if I lead by example, then ultimately the outcome is left in God's hands. I have to release that to God and put it in his hands. And they might come back too. So I don't want you to leave going, oh man, this is sad. No, like, just keep praying. Keep praying for them. Be faithful. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Because the truth is, we're not good enough. We're not smart enough to do what we've been talking about this morning by ourselves. None of us are. We're just not. But the good news of the gospel is that by God's grace, our sins are forgiven. And through his love and through his grace, maybe we are he's able to cover over the sins and the weaknesses and the blemishes that are in our family tree. He gives us the Holy Spirit to cover our weaknesses, and we get Jesus to help show us what it looks like to be loving and to be kind and to be patient and gentle with the people that we have influence over. Stay close to Jesus every day, because you get 936 weeks. That's it. Um, These are my daughters, Avia and Emmy. They're awesome. (laughs) They're hilarious. Uh, Avia is eight and Emmy is five. And probably this afternoon, we'll end up playing Legos or watching a movie on the couch or playing in the backyard swinging, something like that. And I'll tell goofy dad jokes and be silly and tickle them and they'll laugh at me. And that's today. Tomorrow, they'll be in middle school, and they'll be laughing, but not at their daddy. it will be at some middle school boy that they think's funny and that I think's a punk. (laughs) And the day after tomorrow, they'll be in high school, senior, putting on their fancy dress, getting ready for prom. By the end of the week, I'll be sitting in an empty sanctuary where I just gave my little girl away, 936 weeks it's going to feel like one make the most of your time your greatest legacy is a godly legacy so let's start today